This is Pendust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. This story is the saga behind an elegant lamp Ashley Memory and her husband purchased for $15 at a second-hand store. It seemed to be the ideal addition to their new home, until an investigation into the mysterious engraving on its base revealed a macabre history. As she discovered grisly details about the lamp's previous owner, her home life became agitated, and she began to wonder, could the lamp be haunted? Ashley Memory lives in Randolph County, North Carolina, surrounded by the mystical Uari Mountains. She is the author of a novel, Naked and Hungry, and a poetry collection, Waiting for the Wood Thrush. My Haunted Lamp Murder, Mystery, and Remodeling Written by Ashley Memory Read by Julie Niblett When I rolled over the switch on the little brass lamp, it cast a surprisingly bright light over our great room. The elegant black parchment shade imparted a scholarly air and a bit of order to our still unfinished house. And at just $15, it was a steal. It's okay, said my husband, JP, but it's not perfect. I sure wish it had a pole chain instead of a line switch. Unlike my mechanically-minded spouse, I didn't care about that kind of thing. But a mysterious inscription on the marble base had clinched the deal. Kevin Theodore Fletcher, B.A., Northwestern University, Class of 1992. I graduated from college in 1989, which meant Kevin might be close to my age, 50. Also, I had been born in Illinois, home to Kevin's alma mater, yet another connection. An internal whisper reminded me that most second-hand donations came from the estates of dead people, but I shushed it away. It was October 2018, and JP and I had been married just over a year. This lamp was the first one we ever bought together, and in my mind, it was perfect. After a 25-year marriage to a man who wouldn't have noticed if I'd brought home a baby elephant for a coffee table, my union with JP often seemed like paradise. Three years ago, standing on the deck of a house not yet habitable, I inhaled the brisk cedar-tinged air of the forest surrounding us. I imagined the two of us picking cherries from trees we planted together, throwing sticks to our two dogs in a field tumbling with clover and wild blueberries, and reading together at night inside a cozy living room. 
JP's previous marriage had soured before he could complete this house, and we hoped that finishing it and living there would be a fresh start for both of us. Unlike many people, once they learned my slow gait came from multiple sclerosis, JP's eyes didn't immediately narrow with pity. He supported my desire to write creatively after retiring early from a stressful career in college admissions and actually showed me a nook in the future study where I could work one day. He too was an inveterate reader and enjoyed composing poetry. His frequent and often droll references to his favorite literary works, such as Hamlet, both inspired and amused me. A little month, he said, when I asked him how long he thought a 30-pound bag of dog food would last our two months. About as long as it took Gertrude to marry Hamlet's uncle. Although we now lived in the house, much work still lay ahead. However, on the day we bought the lamp, I felt that our lives were practically perfect. Furnishings were sparse, which made our new fixture a welcome addition. The fact that the store where we bought it lay in the middle of two college towns, Chapel Hill and Durham, triggered the prospect of an adventure. I bet Kevin Fletcher is a professor, I announced to JP. Maybe he donated this lamp because he's redecorating his office. Who knows, maybe he's even a history scholar. We could take a break one day and go visit him. We could have a picnic on campus. Google coiled like the snake in the apple tree, tempting me with the lure of new knowledge. So I flipped open my laptop, and to my shock, the search results for Kevin Theodore Fletcher filled the entire screen. Chapel Hill police said they believe a son killed his mother before their bodies were found by a real estate agent. The bodies were later identified as Julia Sutton Fletcher, 86, and Kevin Theodore Fletcher, 53. My fingers froze. This horrific event had happened just eight months ago. You're not going to believe this, I shouted to JP. I read more from the article. A real estate agent walked into 223 Turnberry Trail at about 3.45 p.m., and discovered two bodies. When I saw the blood, I just screamed and ran away, she told a 911 dispatcher. There goes the picnic at Duke Gardens, said JP. My shoulders slumped with the weight of this discovery. Kevin Theodore Fletcher wasn't just dead. He had died violently, probably by his own hand. And he hadn't been a scholar. He hadn't been a professor. He was a killer. The lamp now stood as a sentinel in our great room, visible from all angles, and I couldn't escape the fact that the same bulbs that bathed my new wooden floors with golden light may have led the way for an enraged son to stab his elderly mother to death. My initial delight had evaporated, and now I regarded the fixture with scorn. So much for the perfect lamp, and so much for my perfect life. In the following week, I tried not to obsess about the tragedy. But as everyone knows, trying not to think about something practically guarantees you'll do just that. As I yanked up dozens of young blackberry vines outside, countless baby thorns pierced my hand.
I wondered if Julia had even tried to defend herself. The crime of matricide pricked even deeper, because I too was a mother, and I also had a son. At the time, 29-year-old Dashiell lived in New York City, where he waited tables and practiced stand-up comedy. We'd had our share of disagreements, but I couldn't imagine what would make a son angry enough to kill the woman who gave birth to him. I remembered the words of Kevin's older brother, Willard Fletcher III, who spoke briefly to the press about the tragedy. While he professed shock, he refrained from denouncing his brother, instead revealing a few scant but tantalizing tidbits. Kevin, the youngest of his siblings, had suffered from psychiatric issues and lived with his parents all his life. Maybe, I surmised, his world had been so miserable that he hated it, and by extension, the woman who brought him into it. I should have reserved judgment, but I couldn't help feeling a surge of repulsion whenever I thought of Kevin Theodore Fletcher. The lamp's presence also escalated my annoyance with J.P. His untidiness infuriated the neat freak in me, and our new fixture illuminated his never-ending trail of clutter. A sculptor by trade, the bric-a-brac of his career soon followed from his studio into our new house. I didn't mind the stately head of a lion or the miniature gazelle, but I insisted that the angry baboon and nude torso of his first wife remain in the basement. His clothes and tools also littered the house. Pick up after yourself, I constantly reminded him. In response, J.P. sulked like a chastised child. He found fault with me, too, and complained about the thickness of the comforter I'd purchased for our bed. How I insisted on stowing away the relish fork he used to fish olives out of the jar, or how much pepper I used when I cooked for us. As I turned the light on and off each day, and my fingers rolled over the cord switch once used by Kevin, I wondered aloud if its sinister past had seeped into our lives. We can always take it back, J.P. suggested. He was right. In that moment, the lamp appeared remarkably ordinary. Returning it would be easy. However, doing so would make me feel like a coward, and more than a little guilty. Do we really want someone else to go through this? I asked. To face all this baggage? If I unscrew the plaque on the base, no one will know. I hadn't thought of that. Still, removing the reference to Kevin wouldn't change the past. The grisly history of the lamp might come with it and possibly infest another person's life, that of a truly innocent person and they would have no clue as to why. That felt even more wrong. As a teenager, I'd been fascinated with the occult, and I knew that famed paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren kept a museum of supposedly haunted objects in Monroe, Connecticut. Their collection included voodoo masks, a satanic altar, and a raggedy Ann doll believed to be responsible for the death of a man. Although my youthful curiosity later turned to skepticism, now that we owned a lamp with a macabre past, I wasn't so sure. Do you think our lamp could be haunted? I asked JP. He tilted his head. 
I don't know, but it wouldn't hurt to call Michael. Let's invite him over for lunch. Our pastor, the young man who married us, held a master's degree in divinity. Surely he would know what to do. But when he arrived, he chuckled nervously. Seriously? You want me to exercise a lamp? But the Quaker tradition contained no provisions for an exorcism, so Michael suggested we just pray. We three held hands over the lamp as he spoke. Our Father, please bless this house and our friends who live here. May the spirits in this house be stronger than the spirit of this lamp. Michael's visit calmed me, but tensions between J.P. and me surfaced again as we resumed work on the house. The broad-shouldered do-it-yourselfer took the lead on the physical work, while I trailed behind him. That's a bolt, not a screw. Let me show you how to read a level. You didn't stir the paint long enough, he'd say. Never mind that I once handled electronic communications with nearly 40,000 college applicants each year and managed a team of 11 people. Those rarefied skills meant nothing in the world of construction. Helping him lay the beige floor tiles in the bathroom was an exercise in frustration as well as precision. And eventually, I stopped caring about how they looked. A solid surface is all I need, I told him through gritted teeth. My dream of making time for my writing seemed more elusive than ever. Compounding the problem was the endless stream of J.P.'s collections that followed us. Old books in various states of repair, the skull of a cougar, radios, antique typewriters, cameras. Don't get me wrong, I loved old things too. But he owned too much of everything to appreciate any one thing fully. No, I had started insisting. No more staplers, no more clocks. No more panoramic photographs. When that didn't work, I began to shriek and nag. Everywhere I turned, new objects appeared. It's my house too, he said, and I want to hang some of these photos on the walls. My heart pounded against the sides of my rib cage. We'd already agreed that we'd display things that we'd chosen together. J.P. hated when the voice he once lauded for its golden pear-shaped tones turned so painfully shrill, but I didn't care. No! After an argument, we usually retreated into solitary activities to stew. For J.P., this meant slapping on headphones and cutting tiles or planing wood. I chose to mop the floors in the great room, losing myself in the elixir of orange glow. Although I tired easily and had to rest frequently due to my MS, I loved housework. Scouring a sink, bathing a dog, and hanging our sheets in the wind always soothed me. As I labored, my thoughts turned to Julia Fletcher, who had once lived so happily at 223 Turnberry Trail. According to her obituary, she planned to sell the house only because she hoped to move closer to her eldest son and his family living in California. I wondered if she had helped write the real estate ad. Timeless and sophisticated, 223 Turnberry Trail features an open floor plan full of charm and character. The two-story atrium welcomes you right away. 
223 Turnberry Trail is the home most people only dream of. Sadly, Julia's dream house turned out to be her death house. Like me, I imagined that she had identified very strongly with the homes of her life. Julia, too, may have found comfort in housework. The fact that she raised five children, an engineer, two medical doctors, and a professor of theology, in addition to Kevin, spoke for itself. She had retired from working at Northwestern University, and in Chapel Hill, even after the death of her husband five years ago, she relished life. She sang in the choir at St. Thomas More Catholic Church, walked for exercise every day, and like me, loved gardening and feeding wild birds. In comparison, these days I just kept house. As much as I took pride in my physical labors, these felt like an escape from my true calling. Since my retirement, I'd only written fragments, some poetry, but mostly to-do lists for the house. The more I put off my writing, the more the chaos in our house annoyed me. A frequent quotation of J.P.'s, from Hamlet, of course, wormed into my thoughts. Something about either suffering the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or taking arms against a sea of troubles. I decided it was time to take arms. I had no dedicated place to set up my computer, so I sat on the back porch with a pad of paper. I started with poetry because the words trickled out so easily. I wrote about my troubles, scribbling an ode to the goddess of missing tools, born from my frustration with J.P.'s disorganization. And eventually, the wonder of my new life tiptoed into my pages. The wood thrush who sang from a bower deep in our woods, the little spider on the hibiscus, and even the old pine door we found at a flea market. Laundry piled high and dust bunnies whirled in corners, but I didn't care. I'm going to bring something over from the studio, said J.P. after watching me at work. God help me. More clutter. Please don't. Hush, you'll see. For once, I didn't complain as he toted a desk into the study. It was beautiful, solid mahogany with four turned legs joined by an X-shaped support brace. Now you can write in here, he said, pushing it into the window nook. Although we hadn't yet built shelves for our books or even painted the walls, at least I had space for a writing retreat. When I emerged from my first hour of bliss, I noticed our little lamp in the great room. It teetered meekly by a short stack of eclectic books. Four screenplays by Ingmar Bergman, British radio valves, The Classic Years, 1926 to 1946, by Keith R. Thrower, and My Life at the Bat by Ted Williams. Because of the delicacy of the parchment shade, I applied only the slightest pressure when dusting our new fixture. It appeared to enjoy my tender strokes, and over time I began to feel sorry for this silent witness to murder. Just what had the lamp seen at 223 Turnberry Trail, I wondered. There had clearly been a fight, and there must have been anger, at least on the part of Kevin. 
As a mother, I couldn't imagine how Julia felt in those last moments, knowing her child would be the instrument of her death. From the Oxford English Dictionary, I learned that the word anger came from the Old Norse root ang-ra, which originally meant to grieve. Eureka! As I contemplated this discovery, I thought of Kevin. He was angry enough to kill, yes, but his fury may have sprouted from his grief, his disappointment at the decision to move to California. He may have made a life for himself in Chapel Hill, and suddenly Julia wanted to uproot them, possibly separating him from friends. Of course, this was pure speculation, and no justification for murder. But this new connotation of anger gave me space for empathy. I no longer loathed Kevin. I grieved for him. I also started to dissect my own anger. Perhaps it, too, germinated from grief. My sadness at my perfect life not unfolding as quickly as I had envisioned. Finishing the house took much longer than I planned, and my disease kept me from being as helpful to JP as I'd hoped to be. This sorrow had manifested itself as anger. Be fair, I reminded myself. Go easy on him. Go easy on yourself. All right, I declared one day. We'll hang one panoramic photo in the great room. Pick one, JP said, jubilant. A picture of blushing sirens from the 1922 Bathing Girl Review in Galveston, Texas, soon adorned the back wall of the dining nook. It wasn't exactly what I had planned to put there, but it charmed me. The lamp couldn't have seen the picture from its position, but I believe it nodded in approval. After the visit from our pastor, we began inviting more people over to the house. We were proud of our home and our life together. With the knowledge that so-and-so would be arriving at such-and-such such time, J.P. began relocating his tools and clearing his latest obsessions from the table without my usual prodding. Our little lamp wasn't the only light source in the great room anymore. We now had two chandeliers and a billiard-style pendant for the kitchen, all second-hand finds. Yet the first fixture we bought appeared to lean toward the dining area, craving attention. After a lull in conversation, J.P. and I always looked at each other, and in that brief moment, we savored the knowledge that we had a secret. I always slipped back into the romance of us, him rubbing my head at night, the two of us sharing the first cherry from our Montmorency tree, sweeter than I thought it would be me reading a line from Jane Kenyon. Let the stars appear, and the moon disclose her silver horn. Him tossing out yet another quote from Hamlet. Oh God, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space. May the spirits in this house be stronger than the spirit of this lamp. In March 2019, Nearly two years after the Fletcher tragedy, officials released their final report. Julia had died of multiple stab wounds, including a fatal gash on her neck that severed her jugular vein. Toxicology tests found an antipsychotic drug in Kevin's system. 
and he had not killed himself. The coroner determined that Kevin died of a heart attack. Perhaps realizing what he had done to his mother had broken his heart. For the first time, I searched online for Kevin's obituary. I learned that he had not only earned a BA, but he also held a master's degree in teaching and had a passion for art and history. Kevin Theodore Fletcher had been a scholar after all, and there was a good chance that if his life had worked out differently, he would have become a professor. Kevin wasn't Hamlet, and Julia wasn't Gertrude, but just as in the play, mother and son had died together in a burst of violence. Yet there was still so much about them I would never know, that no one would ever know. The rest is silence, Hamlet had uttered as he took his last breath. The final silence of Julia and Kevin, I hoped, had brought them both peace. And I, too, had found mine. Although we had yet to pass the final plumbing and electrical inspections on our house, I didn't care because I had my writing nook. We bought another lamp for this space, a bronze floor fixture with a floral motif on its base, and thankfully, no discernible history. From my window, I frequently paused to observe the natural world and its gentle pace, such as a little doe ambling through the woods, one delicate hoof at a time, the acrobatics of the titmice who scrambled over the feeder hanging from the eave, and the colors of the leaves, from pale green in the spring to the autumnal burgundies and golds, a cycle which bore witness to the power within us to grow and change. My scribblings eventually turned into a book of poetry, and in November 2019, I was thrilled when Waiting for the Wood Thrush was published. Should we reach out to Kevin's family and let them know we have his lamp? I asked JP. Though as soon as I said it, I knew better. No, we decided. We shouldn't. The Fletchers had suffered enough. It wouldn't ease their pain to know that their brother's light fixture now presided over a jar of mixed nuts, three TV remotes, and a tape measure. This piece was part of our story now. I love your lamp, said my friend Ruth recently. It's perfect for this room. It is not perfect, J.P. retorted, settling his blue-green gaze on my face. I know, I know, I said. If only it had a pole chain. This story is copyright 2022 by Ashley Memory. This recording is copyright 2022 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.